0: For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz-Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry and memorabilia. I am a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there is still work to be done. So, on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. The idea of the artist muse conjures up a glamorous, but passive, woman portrayed by a male artist. Yet many women, who are commonly identified as muses, have been talents in their own right. They are creatively inspired, as well as sources of inspiration for others. In this episode, photographer Mary McCartney, Golden Lion Prize-winning artist Sonia Boyce, and The Daily Telegraph's Lisa Armstrong sat down at Sotheby's in London for a conversation celebrating female creativity and how women have used art, fashion, and photography to reframe the role of women in art as both subject and image maker. Here's our host, Bettina Korek, the CEO of Serpentine Galleries, with more.
1: So today we're here to talk about the role of women in art and how it's been reframed from image to image maker in art, fashion, and photography. And I'm so honored to be with these three artists who are articulating these changes that have been taking place over recent decades. Sonia Boyce, interdisciplinary artist working across film, photography, print, sound, and installation. She was a first black female royal academician when she was elected to the Royal Academy of Arts in 2016. In April 22, she was the first Black woman to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale, where she won the Golden Lion Prize for her work Feeling Her Way. She holds the inaugural chair of Black Art and Design at the University of Arts, London, and we had the tremendous honor of working with her at the Serpentine as part of Radio Ballads, which was curated by Amal Khalaf, Elizabeth Graham, and Leila Gatkins. Her work is an expression of Serpentine's mission of building new connections between artists and society. Okay. Also with us is Mary McCartney, a portrait and fighter, photographer, director, cookbook author, global ambassador for Meat Free Monday. Recently, Mary's feature-length Democracy, If These Walls Could Sing, was nominated for a Critics' Choice Award, and her plant-based cooking show, which we all need to watch, <laughs> Mary McCartney Serves It Up, was nominated for a Daytime Emmy, And she's the ambassador for Leica cameras. And Lisa Armstrong, the Telegraph's head of fashion, I was saying to her, she is so prolific and a fearless critic. We're thrilled to have you here today. She began her career at Vogue and was previously fashion editor at the Times. She's a three-time winner of the British Press Awards for Fashion Journalist of the Year and winner of the British Fashion Awards Best Fashion Journalist. So we're going to start with women coming out of the shadow of men. And wanted to start with one of your photographs, Mary. Um, will you tell us about
2: it? This one is called Being Freedia. And it's the one that's the most set up because a lot of my work is sort of unprepared and I'm uh, sort of with my cameras, but they're very spontaneous moments. Whereas this picture, I'd never met Tracy Emin And I just had this sort of date. I I kind of up with this idea of like taking a portrait of Tracy Emin as Frida Kahlo. Um, I love beds and the intimacy and the privacy. Um, So I I didn't know Tracy Emin. I found an email for her and thought she's either going to detest this idea or love it. And she came back saying, I completely identify with Frida. I had a unibrow and, you know, we know from her work. So I set up this day we were just talking 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 and then when I picked up the camera she completely changed her disposition and then we sort of this very female thing of and the way I love to work is like we were talking without speaking it was sort of our looks and I could tell that we were both sort of thinking about Frida thinking about Tracy thinking about me and then thinking about the viewer and I think that's why this picture works because you can see a chemistry there but it's also something that for some reason it, it worked in a way that the viewer is very engaged with it, I think. So, yeah. And Frida
1: wasn't as known as her husband, Diego Rivera. Yeah, one of the most famous artists of his time. And today she's really become a feminist. I call her the cultural superstar. Mm. And there've been other examples of women artists and creators who've come out of the shadow of men. Do we see this a lot in fashion, Lisa? Well, do we see it a lot? Definitely see it,
3: Elsa Peretti who was a, a muse to holster A muse has a sort of uh in a fashion it's it's a sort of slightly objectifying term. And it fell out of fashion because women, you know, it seemed all, all these women did they just fledged around looking fabulous. But then it came back in again because people like karl Lager in the eighties had in their still unpressage. So it waxed and went. But anyway at this point Sorry, this is quite old, 1997, but she was his muse sort of in the 70s when he was at the height of his power. But she was so much more than that. She'd been a teacher. She was uh, making jewellery on the side. She later went on to design for Tiffany's, very successfully. We all recognise her bean and
4: her bowing variables.
2: And yeah, she was, a, she was an artist in her own right. So was it, she was more of a collaborator than a muse? She was... Or, a, and did, pe- the pe- like, just the press almost... Making a muse on it in a way.
3: Yeah, I mean, she was a collaborator in that unit. She made his, his clothes were very drapey, probably on the rim, which you but the way she wore them, and she lived that life with him, which was very studio 54. And, and I think designers really needed a muse at that point because they didn't wear the clothes. Or, I mean, if they did wear the clothes, they did it in private.
1: No. Um,
3: but actually, very recently, I was interviewing Demner. Vesania, who's the designer at Balenciaga, and he's quite fearless in what he says, and he said to me, oh, during the pandemic, I was living in Switzerland, and I would sometimes put on a pair of high heels because I wanted to feel what it was like. And I thought, well, hats off, actually, because, you know, so many male designers have no idea what their clothes feel
1: like, and that's why we have sold the clothes to out. Going up to Frida Kahlo, she's also an artist that you've been influenced by, so, we're
4: yeah, so we you know, going back to when I was a student back in the early 1980s, I um, went to see a show that was at the Whitechapel, that's about 1982, which was a, a kind of jewel show between Tina Modotti and Frida Kahlo. And it was like this kind of enlightening moment when I saw her work and I really studied a lot of what she was doing when i was a student and then started to reference as i have done many times um, in in the work that i've done throughout my career and um, not only her work but other women artists work and yes the the relationship between she ain't holding them up she's holding on is directly based on this painting by frida Kahlo, where she's basically painting her her family tree and i you know i for me, became a way to think about how one positions oneself within one's family and one's contacts. Her works were incredible. And, you know, of course, since the early 80s, that's when her, her, her style began to rise. And so she was, for me, a, a, a huge influence because the work seemed very much about the contemporary, her contemporary moment. And I wanted to do something that was about my own contemporary moment. But yes, I mean, to talk about this is very much about my own family. And when I was younger and my parents and the question of appearing strong, you know, there's a very familiar trope, people say, of the strong woman. But actually, I'm trying to reference the fact that I need them more than they may need me to be strong.
2: I think that's the thing Frida Kahler It's like She's very iconic in the, the way she presented herself. And a lot of people would know her image, like my kids would know her image, but maybe not even know her work. But it's, there's a vulnerability to her as well, and a, an authenticity.
4: But also, I, mean, I could really see, when you were talking about the relationship between you and, and Tracy, that, that, that it just lets you into a particular kind of relationship with the work.
2: Well, it's interesting, because there's sort of a way between women, I think, of being... We, we can give each other certain looks, and it's like you can speak without some, mm. using words which is something that really kind of excites me when that happens. There's like an understanding and an expression.
4: And what about other artists who've influenced you? So, I mean, I, I, I should say that throughout all of my career, I keep making references. I'm, I'm trying to build a very quiet female canon because, of course, you know, artists do. We do refer to, you know, the historical figures that have kind of inspired us to make what we make. And so I, I have a lot of uh, women artists that I make references to, in particular, Elijah Clark, because of the way she really has forefronted this idea of art as a kind of social, a way of socially engaging people. And then uh, Sophie Talbot Arp, who was one of the founders, you could say, of of Dada, who gets very little recognition, actually, for her contribution to how we understand Dada um, today. So I've there's a particular work that I've made, uh, it was performance work that I'd made, where I was working at the ICA and invited an audience and a performance artist, singer, and a performance sculptor with choreographers to bring an audience in and it was very spontaneous and something occurred during the, the whole kind of performance as it unfolded that just reminded me of both Nietzsche Clark and as well as Sophie Tauber uh, and so this is one print that's kind of come out of that performance. I often take lots of um, production stills Taken while the performance is going on, and then I work with that material afterwards to to create the artwork. And so this is a print that's kind of come out of one of the performances. And
1: you create these spaces of of care because the spontaneity can only happen when there's
4: there's that trust mm-hmm. of space. I mean, particularly that that work became very much about play, uh, and one of the things that I realized as it was unfolding that as adults. We get very few opportunities to just play and you know what was kind of hilarious in that that particular work the works called we move in her way was that the audience it was an invited audience and they got so involved with playing they were encouraged by the performers but actually we couldn't stop them and literally by the by the end of the evening the performers had stopped and they'd gone and the film crew had stopped and they'd gone and people were still playing and but obviously that it kind of released something that Mm. is something we find really difficult as adults to do
2: but also that must have made you feel really amazing that sort of sense of giving someone an idea and actually it really yeah they really took it and will have taken that experience into their everyday.
4: and i mean for me this is something that comes directly from someone like lydia clark Mm who was very much about encouraging people to just go on that journey and just kind of imagine and play and mm-hmm. see what unfolds.
2: It's interesting you're saying that because with photography, especially with portrait photography, it's like we're here and quite relaxed. And then the minute, mine is very much my connection with the sitter or the subject I'm with. And the minute you put the camera up, yeah. it's like recoil. in the thing. And so then it is about similar to the experience you were saying, it's about sort of forming that connection calming down also for me it's tense because i'm like i want to you know i need to work it get it because it's not finished for me until you have that authentic moment or connect some kind of connection otherwise it's very unsatisfying so it's something to do with the relationship that is why i do what i do because when you get that moment it's really exciting and like that frida picture tracy and i you know that chemistry is is really great you know Tracy comes across as quite fierce but she is very vulnerable and I think I got that vulnerable side of her which I'm I think I'm happy about.
1: I think they also wanted to talk about Claudette Johnson who
4: is another artist that's part of your, your canon. Yeah Claudette is an artist that I made. She was very young at this point. I first saw her work at an exhibition that happened in the woods Midlands and I was just really struck by how she was creating these images that kind of figured the black female in ways that I'd never seen before. Claudette was very much part of what became a movement, the movement, the, the black art group. They were all in their teens at the time. Because I was, like in the early, late 70s and early 80s, very, very interested in kind of feminist debates about figuring the female subject, I was just really struck by the way which Claudette's work was kind of challenging me to think differently about how the body might be represented. And she was, you know, she was looking a lot at the kind of cubists and kind of how the cubists sort had kind of portrayed, particularly Picasso, particularly the black female subject, the female subject in general, and how she was appropriating that and reclaiming that. So, you know, she set up lots of things for me to think about, particularly about one's place within art history. So I wanted to mention her today because she was very key in my thinking about alongside Frida Kahner, but that there are, there are these ways that one can somehow picture oneself or picture the female subject and bring about a slightly different narrative to one that we've become accustomed to. And for me, someone like Vaudet was definitely a kind of beacon for, like, think think we can think differently about this.
1: So you pointed out she's taking this very kind of Western trope of the reclining woman and made it in a powered image, and this is something that you've
2: also kind of tackled in your work. A lot of the things I do happen sort of almost, um, I find myself in a situation, I was doing a different project photographically, and I was going to do, I wanted a female form, and I thought of my friend's wife, who's this Chinese-American woman, who's a stand-up comedian, but very shy, and, um, and I texted her and said, look, I'd love to do these pictures, love, Mary xxx I use x's in my text she thought I wanted to do a triple x rated (laughs) study but then she phoned me and she was like and then I was like oh no it was a whole different thing and then she's like but she'd really worked herself up to say yes and then when I realized I could tell she wanted me to do it because there was some psychological reason she wanted to work through it and she would trust me to do it even though she'd never done that before so I got the train to her apartment in Paris, hence Paris Nude. And it's like, I'm not going to do a studio setup. I just want to come to your space. My thing is sort of going into someone's being invited into your personal space and spending time. And we just did two days. And it it was really interesting because it started off. I slept on her sofa and I was getting the train the next day. And I was like you're gonna to have to take the clothes off cause like this like, <laughs> and it was a bit embarrassing, which was surprised me how inhibited we were. It was just me and her. And then in between each shot, she'd put back on her nightie and it was sort of like, sort of very hard work. And we've conked out that night. It was slept so, it was so exhausting. And then the next day, the second set, all of it, like we were bonded and it was just walking around nude. We were just, again, talking without really speaking. I would sort of encourage her. She would get into her own shapes because she she was sort of exploring her Chinese side of what's expected of her. Should she have a family? Did she need to have this? You know, So there's a lot more going on than just taking a photograph of a nude woman. Because as a
3: photographer, I assume that when you're doing court tricks, there's another elephant in the room, which is vanity. And that's not criticism because we've all, you know, it's
2: self-consciousness to varying degrees. That's super interesting because... It's like, how do you get something that you feel... I feel the viewer thinks is authentic. But I actually do like things that are aesthetically pretty. Like, you know, I can go through a book and it can be a lot... But for an image, I, you know, I do actually like something that looks beautiful. But then I want to like somebody nicely. But I want a re- something real in them, not like the usual sort of face that you do. So how do I sort of get to know someone, get their trust... And so that, I think that's been something that's really trained me into how I see But that image. This image is actually, it's sort of to me, I love it because it's a nude, it's not a post moment, but it's about trust. But also again, you're not really seeing that much, but it's got a real intimacy to it. So, and, I, and female slash and form is just really, you know, something that we're, a lot of us are drawn to.
1: We've talked about some amazing women. And I think we can kind of shifted our focus a bit to fashion and the idea of the muse. How did that all begin? Well, I
3: think it began because, well, I was going to say it was a large male to make. if you pick bright back, the first known designer, Rose Bertin, she designed for Marie Antoinette. And they were, they were symbiotic because I think she helped Marie Antoinette create this Marie Antoinette fit. And in the same way, Halston said, oh, Elsa Peretti made my clothes her her. This is what designers do, because they don't reinforce the dress. They don't want a dress to just be this standalone item, because they could then just put it in a museum on an on anico. They wanted to come alive, and they need the right person to do that. And that's what Marie Antoinette did for, for Rose Bertin. I mean, ultimately, it was part of a downfall, because, you know, the extravagance. The, the population wanted their royalty to be incredibly ornate and gilded. And then by 1789, it was, they were of that. And, and I mean, her clothes, her image was so part
1: of the cantalist without revolution. So, yeah, thank you, Rose Batum. And then women designers were also inspired by other women.
3: Yes, that kind of is interesting because um, I don't know whether Susie or now Susie Cage, Nick Cage was officially her muse but better talks about her. She said Susie had been very instrumental. I think it is just so helpful to see your clothes colour live from the from the sketch pad. Just to go back to what I was saying at the beginning when Ian Muse's Radvish Hansen seems a bit, it it doesn't seem like a very woke term but actually I don't know how they can design
1: without some kind of views because otherwise it's just so abstract. To the muses of today have a kind of different relationship with the designers? Is it more transactional? Um, I think muses would probably call themselves ambassadors. They're usually
3: entrepreneurs slash humanitarian. So, uh, a, a British designer, he does like have, yeah, he does like happen in the house to muse. But every season he has to fixate on somebody. You know, again, plates close away to the abstract. So he's fixated on Princess Margaret. I don't mean that in creep away. Fixated is probably the wrong word, but really researched them. And uh, he found uh, Fanny and Stella, aka uh, Frederick and Ernest. But I was just absolutely knocked out by these two because they were two men who lived in. How late? Sight as women, we middle of the Victoria times, and we I mean, got into trouble with the police. Actually, were held up in a magistrate's cause or something. They were sex workers, and he based his whole collection on them. And, and to me, going backstage afterwards and learning about about them just brought the whole thing alive because I'm so fascinated. And somebody needs to make uh, a movie about it because they they were conducting their lives. Sort of fairly unhindered until about 1870, when a pa- I mean we think of the Victorian age has being completely crazily prudish throughout. But actually, I think it was in 1870 that them sort of they got the moral jitters for some reason and thought the whole country was going to hell in a handcart, and that's when when Fanny and Stella sort of ran into and trumping at the in the magistrate's call but I, I love this idea in history, throughout history that there are these characters we
1: don't see because we just don't expect them to be there. Um, I think that there's one other side that we wanted to look at, a great London-based designer. Oh, Harris Reed, an American, British really quite fascinating.
3: He's self-created because he's a brilliant self-publicist, which is what designers have to been at, especially in the UK, I think, don't have much money. He's gender fluid. He absolutely invites steps, which I think is I love that. I love that he I don't know if he calls himself they actually, but mm. I love that. I love that they you, you know, because we don't like being stared at, especially in fashion, being stared at is always a bit of a sign that you've gone too far. Harris likes to go too far. I mean, it's a real celebration and I think that uh, now has Scott Judd and Nina Ricci. So, at Harris, is very much Harris's own moves, by the way. Harris doesn't need anybody else, and her, I think, is now, they are now getting celebrities. But, um, I just want to go back to Bunny and Stella, because they caused a commotion by using women's lavatories in around 1870. And I just think, you know, hello. <laughs> you know, 150 years later, we
1: still got the same commotion going, so. We make progress, and we don't make progress when support to steps back. Um, Mary, coming back to your work, you've been inspired by powerful women. I mean, we've
2: talked about your mom. As a female photographer, it sort of feels sort of quite easy now to be a female photographer. But the women I was influenced by, when you know, my mom, she was kind of ostracized for loving rock and roll and wanting to take pictures of rock and roll musicians the long hairs as they were called and uh, Eve Arnold I'm, I was lucky enough to meet who was a brilliant magnum photographer and she looked like the little old lady in the Tweety Bud thing but when she spoke she was like really direct really she taught me a lot she really knew her mind and she was on a lot of rallies for magnum in the 50s like Malcolm X um life magazine and she she really sort of those women paved the way for people like me to be able to do what we do now. And they gave up quite a lot, family life, had a lot of guilt about parenting, things like that. So, you know, that I, because we're doing this panel, I've been thinking a lot about that, but yeah, that I just wanted to highlight that, the importance of them and how they have spearheaded.
1: Well, and as you mean, Sonia, in your work, you've highlighted and involved the contributions of so many women. Um,
4: including especially other artists, as you've just mentioned. Oh, so this, this particular project has been a long-standing project that I've been doing for over 20 years called The Devotional Project, where I've been, through the, the generosity, actually, of the general public, been building a kind of um, roll call of Black British women in the music industry. So the wallpaper itself, which is called The Devotional Wallpaper, consists of 200 named performers. And then I, because I chose work quite often, people would talk to me about whether it was a kind of political statement to kind of name all of these women. And so I I then added to the work by taking all of these images out of magazines, newspapers, things that I would just come across all the time. Sometimes people would you know, send me material and created these placards out of it because People were saying so often to me that they saw it as a kind of political statement, which I hadn't really thought of when the project began. And so I, I thought, well, okay, if this is a political project, I'm going to make placards using the material that we see every day, newspaper items, magazine items of these performers. So that it's, I'm, I'm playing then with what some might consider the criticism of the work and saying, well, actually I feel even more empowered to say, okay, if you want this to be a political statement, then I am going to use you know, some headwind from the Sun newspaper or some advert in a musical uh, paper to say, yes, so I want to, these voices are really very, old. and of course it's a historical project.
1: And that connects to what you mentioned earlier, the idea of creating a, a canon yeah. that you reference and, and the importance of archiving and articulating that history. Yeah, I mean I was really very interested in
4: yeah, the historical that you were kind of talking about in terms of that these questions can go back quite a while and that I'm not quite like, sure why we've come to this moment in terms of the, the prominence of women within the arts not that it shouldn't be and of course it, it, it needs to happen but there's these, these kind of ways of yeah that it's prominent and then it kind of ebbs away and then it becomes prominent again you know, it works for the market at this moment. I'm really intrigued by that because I think that women have been making things for centuries. At what point does the cultural awareness of that shift? What is is it because we we are understanding more and
3: more about how how I oh, was looked so many women in so many fields lead through the centuries? I mean, if you look at the Bath House, there are so many women involved in that, but you don't ever. You still don't see most. It's only when I went to um, Bauhaus Museum in Tel Aviv, actually, I got pictures of them. He said, with well, God, you know, you think it's Corbusier and a few other men. And I think that
1: that happens over and over again in literature, in, in, in art. I think we wanted to move on to Sonia's incredible project at the Venice Biennale. Um, I mean, I went twice. Every time there were so many people spending
4: so much time in the space that you had created. Just to say Lynn, a bit about feeling her way. So it, it, it involves five musicians, four singers, one composer. Um, and we spent uh, a day at Abbey Road Studios for four of them and one, one person who wasn't able. All of this was made during lockdown all of my works involve other people, somehow, um, it made it very complicated and difficult to make some of the arrangements. And basically, when I was invited to make a work for the British Pavilion, I returned to the devotional Project. And I've made a few works out of that project. And in the back of my head for quite a long time, I had this idea about creating my own girl band. I I thought it would be really important for the moment that we were in to do something that was about the voice, was about how singing connects us in ways that we don't always fully understand. I think part of what happened there in terms of one so many people were visiting the exhibition, and I do think it's to do with the the, the voice, uh, the female voice in particular. One of the great friend and kind of writer who's suicide, Jean Fisher, she'd written about her work before and in an essay that she wrote, she kind of talks about the voice that our first experience of the voice is in our mother's stomachs and that actually it's this very fundamental kind of connection that we have, that we maybe wider society tries to Always the finale. I often think of that. I often think of that too when you read someone heavily pregnant and you're
2: like, well, I'm chatting to this person but that, that baby can completely hear everything we're saying, but it's not out yet. So yeah, it's just such a- and, But there's such a-, there's a such you hear the world
4: before you ever see any, or you're actually out there in the world and that, that- And you're protected still. Protected still, but also just that question of how fundamental sound and its vibrations are where we become more aware, but it's so fundamental. And of course, for me, in my interest in these, and in, in these singers who are incredibly skilled, was that it does touch us in ways that we not, we, we may not be able to guard ourselves for. And I think that that may have been part of the response to the show is that it kind of almost bypassed the cerebral to, to the gut somehow, because that's what singing, and I think it is to do with a very fundamental moment for all humans somehow. I was a bit worried there were people who were coming out of the show crying because it was touching them in ways that they were not expecting uh, in terms of going to see an, a kind of art exhibition.
1: Who lets come up so much heard of the female intuition, the God and the alchemy that you created with this work that, that really touched so many people. That I think I can speak for everyone to just Thank you to the three of
0: you for sharing. So much. This was Sotheby's Talks Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit Sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season one, which features conversations with guests, including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live.